Hello and welcome to the Harvard Data Science Review Podcast. I'm Liberty Vitter, feature editor of the Harvard Data Science Review, and I'm joined by my co-host and editor-in-chief, Shali Meng. Today we are talking about something that a lot of Americans have certainly heard of, but might not really understand why it's so important, the census. It's what decides, among many other things, how many congressmen and women each state has and where their districts are located. Every 10 years with every census, these districts get redrawn and cause a huge kerfuffle of the Democrats saying they are drawn more fairly for the Republicans and vice versa. Just this cycle, a seven-term incumbent Democrat was ousted from his seat because of redistricting. So there are major repercussions of the census. So to discuss what the census is and how we can protect the privacy of all Americans so that everyone feels comfortable and free to participate, we've invited three co-editors of this special issue on the census in the Harvard Data Science Review to come and talk to us. We have Erica Groshen, who's the former Commissioner of Labor Statistics and the head of the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics. We have Professor Robin Guang, an assistant professor of statistics at Rutgers University, and Professor Salil Vadhan, professor of computer science and applied mathematics at Harvard University. Salil couldn't join us today in person, but he will be here in spirit, as you'll hear throughout the episode. So I'm going to just dive in with my first question. So Erica, everyone hears about the census, you know, especially in the statistics world. We know what the census is because that's the kind of stuff we work in every day. But I think for the general public, what is the census? Why is it important? What are the use cases that really matter for the census? Censuses are so important that they may be one of the oldest statistical products in communal societies. You need to know how large your group is. They're mentioned, certainly, you know, there's a whole chapter in the Bible named numbers after having censuses. Lord Kelvin once said, you can't manage, in much more flowery terms, you, you can't manage what you can't measure. <laughs> so they are uh, one of the fundamental activities that any social group engages in, and the larger your social group, like a country, the more complicated and important it is. So it's written into our constitution that we do a census in order to become the kind of democratic society that the founders were envisioning. And just the fact that that's done every 10 years has meant that the census plays a role far beyond simply allocating seats in Congress. The statistical frames that come from the census underlie nearly all the demographic descriptions that we have and many of the national surveys that we take and all sorts of decisions made by government, business, and other people. So massive amounts of federal expenditures are allocated on the basis of census counts. Also, a lot of research and uh, data science activities of all sorts rely on the ground truth, so to speak, provided by the census. So it is truly a form of important infrastructure in an information society. And Eric, I, I guess probably one of the most pertinent examples at the moment to people, especially given the 2022 elections, is 
reapportionment, redistricting. We have new districts that different uh, congressmen and women are running for that, you know, never existed. And they all are created because of this 2020 census. Right. And that's the reason why it's in the Constitution is for that particular purpose. So regarding this whole issue of, of data privacy, that's really not new to Census Bureau because they are always required by the Constitution to collect the data as accurate as possible, but also by Title 13 to uh, make it as private as possible. So the question I have here is before they implement this new thing called Defined Privacy, which we'll be talking about, what had been the traditional methods that uh, are common and that were in use? The Census Bureau has had in place disclosure avoidance or disclosure limitation uh, mechanisms since many decades ago. The ones that were used up till the 2010 census were mostly in place starting from the 1990s. These methods consist of two types of mechanisms. The one is suppression, essentially the idea that if there are cells in the table uh, or parts of the cells that are in the table that contain sensitive information, for example, if the numbers of entries in that cell is too few, then those cells would be suppressed. So this is the method of suppression. And the one thing that is tricky to do in the suppression situation is that we do have to also think about not only the cells themselves that could be sensitive and revealing, but also the logically related cells who could imply the value of the cells that are being suppressed. So suppression, in fact, involves a bit of a complicated maneuver of finding out the logical relationships of having to suppress all things that are relevant. This results in data tables that are referred to as being Swiss cheese because uh, certain cells are you know, just carved out and they're empty while the others are, are populated. And the other main branch of uh, disclosure avoidance mechanisms have been called swapping. So the idea is that thinking about the tabulations, which are multi-way contingency tables, what the census does is that essentially what can think of it as uh, taking one person coming from one county in one state and swapping this person with somebody else coming from another state in another county. And we do this randomly to maintain the margins of those continuity tables to still be the same as they are before. For example, if you're looking at the total numbers of people that are you know, tabulated by age or tabulated by uh, race, ethnicity, the tables still look the same. However, what this does is it destroys these dependency structures between these variables sabotaging in some way the the data quality coming from these multi-way contingency tables. And these methods have traditionally been used and they have been motivated mostly from an intuitive argument that uh, surely if something random and undisclosed were done to the data, then surely there's some kind of a privacy injected into the data product. But in fact, those intuitions have never been captured rigorously using mathematics and what the Census Bureau have come to realize coming uh, up to the 2020 census was that those traditional disclosure avoidance methods were not really safe in that they are not sufficiently secure to fend off what's called reconstruction attacks. So the Census Bureau actually did these uh, reconstruction attack studies in which they proved that you know using public available information, they were able to in fact reconstruct very accurate information about individuals uh, using the published 2010 census data that were produced using swapping methods. So that was one of the motivations that essentially prompted the census to 
think about revamping their disclosure avoidance system and adopting differential privacy for the 2020 decennial census. I always hear about big tech invading our privacy, but I'd never really thought about the government invading our privacy. And now, you know, I, I just wrote a piece about how the government's basically buying our location data or other types of data from apps about us. And people are being charged with crimes. You know, women now for abortions are going to be charged, you know, based upon geolocation data that the government can buy or get a warrant for. And I'd never really thought about sort of having to protect our data from our own government. So this is a new thought process to me. And, you know, when you said that you can really construct individual level data, you know, what is the example of what someone using the traditional methods of data privacy that someone could do with the 2010 census data that they could reconstruct? Yeah. So so the fear actually is not so much government misusing it, but government providing other people with the means to misuse the data. Government misuse of the data is governed by the laws and that's less of a concern than the idea that people would use the data that the government provides for good reasons to help people do bad things, right? That's, I think, the big fear. And so you can think about, for instance, hate groups or child abusers targeting special groups by age or ethnicity based on data that come from the census. And that, that has two pernicious outcomes. One is the harm to the individuals that you would not want to come from an otherwise uh, well-intentioned government activity. So the harming the targets is terrible. But also the fear of being harmed by reporting your information accurately would justifiably lead you to either not participate at all in this information act gathering activity or perhaps even to lie. And that means that, that then the data quality is impacted and then all of the uses of the data are contaminated by the poor quality of the data, right? Then you have to write the law properly to protect people from this, to preserve the quality of the data. And that can be difficult to write and to get correctly. And so without good techniques for actually uh, minimizing the harm from data, then you could get laws that would go overboard and also destroy the information collecting. So Erica, just to follow up on that, would that be why, you know, the citizenship question of, you know, having that question on the census of are you a citizen or not was so controversial. Would that be because you would not get, I mean, taking out the political aspects of it, you would not get an accurate count of the number of people living in the United States because then people would be afraid to answer the question. So you would have missing data, which from my understanding, the constitution says every person has to be counted regardless of citizenship. So is that the fear with some, a question like that? Exactly. People not participating or lying in some way. And so the data just is not as good. So that is a great example of exactly the kind of fear that would degrade the quality of the data if it's not private. Well, thank to both of you again for editing together with Salih Vadan, the special issues on the French privacy for 2020 census. Now, we just talk about why we need 
do the census as well as uh, protect its privacy. But there's still a question, I think, for the general audience particularly would like to know, what is differential privacy? How is it so different from the previous methods, for example, Robin, you talk about these statistical disclosure limitations. So, you know, for our general audience, if you uh, can help to explain what is differential privacy. Right. So differential privacy is a really interesting idea, and it is a formal definition of privacy and made rigorous a lot of these intuitive notions that previously escaped mathematical capturing. So the idea of differential, and the word differential has a meaning, which we'll also see as I explained this, is that what is really the information pertaining to an individual? We have to situate this individual in the entire database. Now consider if we have a database, which say that you and I and Erica and everyone on the call is, is part of, and someone, the statistician, the Census Bureau, the demographer, um, they want to learn about the aggregate features coming from the database, and then they're surely going to compute some kind of function on that. We want the statistician to know about aggregate features from the database, but we do not want them to be able to learn about the individual information pertaining to each one of us. So the idea really is that if we were to compute that function on the database with my information inside the database versus my information outside of the database, the result that this function will get should not be different by too much. And therefore, if that can happen, this function will faithfully capture the information it's intended to capture, but just by looking at this function, the result of the function alone, anyone would not be able to tell whether I, as a person, is inside or outside of the database. And this is performed in reality using randomness. In fact, we have to inject a little bit of randomness into this query function that we're interested in computing in order to deliver this kind of probabilistic indistinguishability. And the amount of noise and just how much noise to inject or what kind of noise to inject is very much the what the literature is all about. It is what uh, computer scientists and statisticians put their mind to think about uh, in order to deliver that. So in a, kind of just for the general audience, the basic idea is that by looking at some aggregated data because of noise injected, you won't be able to tell much about the individuals that inside this data set. For example, the, the average salary or, or average something that you won't be able to tell. Exactly. The idea is to, it's to bring together this very nice balance between maintaining the high quality of this query, which is this data product, which is this average, say, income uh, or, or whatever aspect that you wish to learn. So that thing is still going to be sufficiently accurate for the purpose that you wish it to be. However, looking at that will not be able to tell anyone, adversary or not, about whether an individual is part of the database or not. Because Salil cannot be here, so I actually contact him in advance. I asked him about what's so special about differential privacy from a CS computer science scientist perspective. And he gave a really quite interesting answer, which I, because you know, I'm a statistician, I have not thought about that angle. He basically said intellectually, the differential privacy really brought a rich literature on the cartography into the statistical limitation uh, disclosure. And the way he described what the difference between the cryptography and the statistical limitation is, cryptography is to protect the data when the data not being used. 
meaning that protected data when it's being transmitted, you know, it's always be, but it's but but when it's used, there's nothing. You just want to use it as it is. But statistical disclosure limitation is to protect the data when it is being used. His point is being that this uh, differential privacy really brought this very strong mathematical foundations, all the strong results, particularly on these adversary modeling from cryptography into, into the statistical uh, disclosure limitation. The other thing he pointed out, which I thought it was also quite important, and we're witnessing that, is that the differential privacy uh, clearly has generated a lot of extremely rich theoretical investigation series, but at the same time, it has been transferred into a practice very quickly. You know, many things in academia research are not necessarily having both of these parts, but this clearly is a one that kind of have these features. So that's what I have learned from, you know, Salio. You know, it's really nice to think of this idea of differential privacy as sort of a catch-all, like it'll fix everything. But I know that there's been a lot of mixed reactions to the rollout of differential privacy. And so I'm sort of wondering, you know, is this a totally new thing that people are just hearing about now? Or is this being used in other places or other groups using differential privacy? Is there something about, about the fact that others use it that should make us more comfortable with the concept of differential privacy being used in the census? It is a really interesting point, Liberty, that you're bringing up. I think the starting point is that the census is such an important product that, you know, in Terry Sullivan's words, this is what underpins our democracy. These are the numbers that are crucial to the normal societal functioning that many people care about it. Uh, there are demographers, there are economists, political scientists, everybody relies on the census output to uh, make their own decisions. And the, a lot of these decisions have consequences. Therefore, many of these data user communities, uh, they are driven by the need to maintain and to pursue higher quality data. Now, I mentioned just now that there is always a trade-off between uh, the extent of privacy protection and the data's usability or utility. Intuitively speaking, the more privacy would mandate that we add more errors and more noise into the data project. But at the same time, we'll diminish the utility of the data. Therefore, a lot of the tension that we're seeing uh, and the debates really revolve around this privacy utility debate that the Census Bureau, in order to uh, make sure that they are complying with the Title 13's mandate and protect the privacy, would like perhaps to tune up the privacy protection a little higher. But that would then necessarily mean that the resulting data that they put out are not as accurate as the data users will need. I just add that a lot of these issues really haven't come up in the private uses because the private uses have been much more narrow for some particular set of clients of a private company that was producing the data. And they would just add in a little bit of noise, and that would be tailored to the needs of that one particular user. And it wasn't a big deal. But the census is a big deal. So anything you do to it has these very much, these broad consequences that that we've been talking about. Can I add one thing to what Erica said? I absolutely agree with what Erica said about, uh, you know, the private use and 
what would be in contrast, the, the Census Bureau's public use of differential privacy really is, there are really two different schemes. And we really, in a way, the Census Bureau has, have been tasked with a tremendously difficult task here because I do not know if there existed a case like this before that the data curator had really to put out and disseminate differentially private data products that are such high dimensional, such a detailed database as the Census Bureau's uh, decennial census data release. This has never have happened before. And in a way, a lot of the mechanisms such as the top-down algorithm that they designed to, to support that, it reflects advanced research. It is just not an easy thing. In a way, this implementation or this application of differential privacy onto the census, I consider this as a, an advancement, even scholarly speaking, in the field of differential privacy to see how and when the, I guess, the theory meets practice and when there's such a tremendously sized application, what would really happen? And that is really vividly illustrated by the decennial census as we are seeing right now. And also, I think it's important to remind everyone that Census Bureau, being a government agent, that they try very hard to be particularly transparent about, right? Because, uh, you know, the other day, I my iPhone was asking me to join some program. And to, to assure me that is a good thing to join, it displayed a line basically saying, you know, don't worry, you know, this thing is protected by differential privacy. And I was looking at it, I was just asking, oh, wow, but you never told me, you never tell me what the epsilon, you know, would be, right? Because, you know, you just said defense privacy. So I actually uh, asked Salil this the question, again, from the CS perspective, how much confidence should the consumer have when they were told something is being protected by defense privacy? What does it mean? Does that really protect their privacy? And, you know, Salil's answer is basically saying that if these companies are really implement everything correctly, the user can feel confident that their data is being protected by the state of our technology here. But I guess there's one important point, I think, um, uh, Robin, you mentioned this the whole concept of differential privacy is about that difference. So I think that there is a general misperception is that nobody can protect you if you put your everything online, on Facebook, on Twitter, you know, nobody can protect you. In fact, from that perspective, uh, it's very easy to be differential private because there's nothing further to protect. So the whole notion of differential privacy, as my understanding is here, is essentially to ensure that the release of data will not adding too much of the additional risk of disclosure on top of what you already made everybody aware of what you're doing. So I think uh, uh, it's, it's very important for the general audience to understand the difference between the absolute privacy and the relative uh, you know, pri privacy. And I think that the one thing differential privacy does right, you know, nobody can guarantee the absolute privacy. And it's therefore this notion of differential privacy is just uh, a more sensible one. That, uh, but I think that distinction tends to be lost when people talk about protecting privacy. Speaking of which, that I want to uh, ask both of you if you can help to provide a kind of a quick lay person's uh, summary of introduction to these wonderful special issues you two plus Salil have edited. And uh, I understand it's more than you know a dozen articles. There are lots of interesting stuff, including the census, the algorithm they, they use. And the both of you, thank you to both of you yourself, have written wonderful articles there. So just give the uh, audience a general sense of what they should look forward to. 
I'm going to give credit to Salil for coming up with a, a great uh, summary of the three basic central questions that we look at in various ways in the volume. So the first one is really just the facts. How, why and how did the Census Bureau adopt differential privacy? And then the second question is, um, will the released differentially private, private data be fit for use? So, you know, how bad are things going to be, you know, in this world, right? And so tests of that. And then the third one is, so what's the debate about and how do we move forward from there? Many of the papers address more than one of these topics, but those are the three big conceptual questions. And I think one of the strengths of the volume is that we have so many different perspectives on these three central questions. So we have computer scientists and economists and statisticians and... Uh, Social scientists? Yeah, mathematicians, right? <laughs> we have a really broad range of people, uh, not to mention people in the government, outside the government, uh, demographers, all bringing the strengths of their disciplines to look at these questions and having to communicate with each other in ways about this topic that they don't normally communicate. And I think that that's one of the real strengths of the volume, that we have all these perspectives. Where should a reader of general interest start, other than of obviously your wonderful in introduction? Robin, you have any recommendations? I would, in fact, recommend the article that Erica and Danny wrote, uh, which is coming from the perspective of an applied researcher. Uh, what do they need to know about using the census uh, new differentially private data? I imagine for most of the readers of HDSR who somehow their, their work will, in one way or another, have to do with data and data analysis, perhaps that's a good place to start with understanding the baseline of what we're now being faced with, what are the challenges, and what kind of mentality shift do we have to now contemplate to move into this new world where invariably we are going to see more and more data products released out there to be differentially privatized. You know, differential privacy has seen such a fast adoption in practice by, uh, you know, both private corporations, uh, internet companies, as well as official statistical agencies. And the, one of the hopes is that if there is a formal and uh, provable way of guaranteeing privacy and privacy protection and the future leakage of information coming from existing data, then we could potentially think about sharing more data and using them to contribute to open science and to, you know, especially these data that probably would cost a lot of money to collect from small groups that would require protection. However, they have tremendous scientific value. Would it then be possible for scientists to now start sharing these data and learn from a common source that would just be of tremendous societal and scientific value? And that is, the, that is what we are hoping for. <laughs> I think that's a really cool and hopeful note to wrap up on is the positive side of what's happening with everyone adopting differential privacy instead of the mixed reactions that sometimes happen otherwise. And we always wrap up with what we call our magic wand question. So if you had a magic wand, 
what would you do? And in this case, uh, the question we came up with was that if you had a magic wand, and this is both for Erica and Robin, um, what is one question that you would put on the census that isn't there? Mm. That's a really hard question. <laughs> I wish our I wish our listeners could see both of your faces right now. It's like looks of horror, confusion, all put on the spotness. <laughs> uh, well, you know the reason that that's so difficult is that the Census Bureau is used for so many different things. And so if you talk to you know any one of these disciplines that we've talked about, they then they'd say, you know, add this or add that. Um, from entirely a research perspective, yep. I would ask people for the social security numbers so that we could match this information <laughs> with everything else that a researcher wants to match it with in some safe environment and then be able to do research that added in information from other places. The true big brother world would be coming there. It would take the magic <laughs> wand, right? <laughs> Robin, any ideas? Well, Erica talked about the research side. Well, why don't we ask the question, is it coffee, is it tea, or is it neither? <laughs> I've always wondered this. Because I know people who don't drink either, and they are highly functional researchers. I always wonder how they do it. <laughs> How do you get it without out? coffee? Is it possible? I like it. My answer would be it's a wine. You know? <laughs> it's a wine. <laughs> oh, it's a wine one. Which one? Red, white, or champagne or something else? All oh, yeah. Above. That's another good question. <laughs> you include herbal tea, I'm fine. That I run on herbal or tea. Or just champagne. <laughs> you know, that's an easier one to pick. I like that's that one better. Free. Yeah. Champagne is fine. And, yes. and I also want to say champagne is particularly appropriate for the end of this episode because we really need to and should raise a, a, a glass or two to both of you as well as Salio and for, to thank you for both the incredible work, but also to congratulate this, uh, this volume. And I hope this volume will go on. It will be a historical document. And uh, I want to mention to the general audience that this is only the part one of this special episode on Defense Privacy for 2020 Census in part two We'll be interviewing a couple of authors to hear their perspectives. And regardless of whether you really care about defensive privacy or not, the data privacy issues, I'm quite sure it is on everybody's mind. Anytime you use iPhones, do anything, that uh, this privacy issues become so critical as we get into deeper into this, this digital age. So there's uh, forever there this debate about how do you collect the useful data but also protect you know, people's privacy. And I want to thank both of you and as well as Salio again for this uh, wonderful special issue. Thank you.